0: Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to Acts chapter 23. We'll be looking at uh, verses 12 through 24 and the Jewish conspiracy that forms to try for basically the third time to kill the Apostle Paul. So we're still in uh, Jerusalem. Uh, The Lord has rescued Paul out of the Sanhedrin. He rescued Paul. Him out of the temple first when the Jews were trying to kill him. And then when he was ushered in front of the Sanhedrin and, and uh, things fell apart there, another riot started happening. They wanted to tear him limb from limb. He re- the Lord rescued him again. Again through the Romans. The Roman army. And so now we come to a third occasion where the Jews are trying to put to death uh, the Apostle Paul. So let's uh, begin reading in Acts chapter 23, starting in verse 12. And as I read uh, the Scriptures, I'm reading the inspired Word of God, which is given for our edification, our prophet, our blessing, to guide us, teach us, direct us, turn our thoughts to the Lord. It's God's precious holy Word that we're reading, and this is a privilege And it's a great blessing. Verse 12. When it was day, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There are more than 40 who formed this plot. They came to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a solemn oath to taste nothing until we have killed Paul. Now therefore, you and the council notify the commander and bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case by a more thorough investigation. And we, for our part, are ready to slay him before he comes near the place. But the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, and he came and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Lead this young man to the commander, for he has something to report to him. So he took him and led him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to lead this young man to you since he has something to tell you. The commander took him by the hand and stepping aside began to inquire of him privately. What is this that you have to report to me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down tomorrow to the council as though they were going to inquire somewhat more thoroughly about him. So do not listen to them for more than 40 of them are lying in wait for him who have bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they slay him. And now they're ready and waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man go, instructing him, tell no one that you have notified me of these things. And he called to him two of the centurions and said, get 200 soldiers ready by the third hour of the night to proceed to Caesarea with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. And they were also to provide mounts to put Paul on, and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And may God bless the reading of his word. Let me see if I can get my my PowerPoint going here. It says, no service found. Manual connection. Let me try that. Um, what we see in uh, the example of uh, Paul's experience here is really just a testimony that uh, the Christian life is not always an easy life, is it? Do what? What am I doing wrong? Oh, I've got it. Okay. I'm not seeing it on my... Uh, That's okay. I think I can just use that. But uh, in Paul's experience with what's going on in this particular passage, uh, the Christian life certainly is not designed to be an easy walk through the park. And uh, things will not always be well or be easy in your life or in mine. That there will be trials and troubles and it's necessary that they come into our life. It is necessary. It's a part of our sanctification. It's a part of our being made more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes those trials will come our way in a very slow and steady drip. And sometimes they'll rush in like a flood. Job said in his book that man is born for troubles like sparks fly upward. There's almost a, a spiritual law of nature, if you will, that That we are born for troubles. You will have troubles. You cannot escape them. They will find you and seek you out. It's a part of God's plan. And the point is, don't be discouraged or depressed by those difficulties. Don't give up, give in, or give out. But face your trials with faith, with humility, with trust in God's providence and God's promises to see you through. Now Paul is in the middle of one of those flood water times of trials. The Lord has encouraged Paul with a night uh, visitation and with words that he will will, uh, go to Rome, that the Lord will get Paul to Rome, and he will bear witness of Christ at Rome. But no sooner than he received this nighttime encouraging message and promise from the Lord that he is swept away into another avalanche of danger coming his way. So the point is, how does he respond to that? And what does it teach us for how we should respond to our trials today as well? So I think that's some of what I hope we can look at together this morning. Well, let's begin by looking at the plot in verses twelve through fifteen. We find that uh, the Jews, <clears throat> verse twelve, formed a conspiracy, which means that basically, uh, as we go on and read in verse twelve, that they it's a conspiracy that they bound themselves under an oath that they wouldn't eat or drink until they killed Paul. So, basically, this is an assassination conspiracy. They failed to lynch Paul in the temple when the Romans rescued him by the grace of God. They were unable to convict him of any offense when they had brought him before the Sanhedrin the day before so they couldn't execute him there. So now they resigned themselves to an assassination plot. This is a group of Jews that hated Christ, hated the Gospel, and all they wanted to do was to kill Him. Put Him down. We learn in verse um, 13 that there are more than 40 who form this plot. And notice what they do. So this is like a 40-man hit squad. And basically today, we would call these guys terrorists. It's like the guys almost on the news we're reading about. These are like terrorists. They're out to assassinate a religious leader. Now notice in verse 12, they bound themselves under an oath. Literally, that word is the verbal form of anathema. In other words, they anathematize themselves in an oath before God where they are promising to God, Lord, we will not eat and we will not drink until we kill Paul. And if we eat or drink before we do that, then anathema. Anathematize us, curse us. That's basically the commitment that we find. These guys are not playing around. They are, they are dead serious. This is, by the way, the same word that is found of Peter in his third denial of Christ in the garden, uh, in, the, in the courtroom, excuse me, of Caiaphas. When he denies the Lord, he says he swore with an oath. In other words, he called down a curse on himself that he was telling the truth. So Peter was guilty of this as well. So they came together and asked God to curse them if they ate or drank before they killed Paul. Now in verse 14, this group of 40 Jews now come to the chief priests and the elders, and they tell them what they've done. We bound ourselves under a solemn oath to taste nothing until we have killed Paul. Now therefore, you and the council. So now they've come to the the Jewish council or the Sanhedrin. They come to the Sanhedrin. They tell them what their plot is. They've spun this deceptive plan, but they need the council to agree to it and participate in it. So the Sanhedrin now, they're being asked to call Paul to another meeting because they are going to investigate more thoroughly the matter. And when when the troops are bringing Paul to the meeting, then the assassins are going to attack and try to kill him. And apparently the council's okay with that. They agree to it. There's no objection. So in verse 15, Now therefore you and the council notify the commander... And bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case by more thorough investigation. And we for our part are ready to slay him before he comes near the place. Sanhedrin wanted him dead. At least the, the Sadducees did. You know, last week we saw the Pharisees. They really want him dead, but they at least agreed with Paul in certain theological doctrines. But basically, they're wanting him dead too. And so every indication is they're in agreement. And I think one of the things we see from this, that these assassins, this group of, of assassins, 40 strong, are now coming to the chief priests and they're coming to the elders and they're presenting this deceptive plan to help them kill Paul. And you just see how corrupt the religion has become. They're actually joining hands the leadership at least probably the majority of the leadership is now joining hands as it were with the terrorists to murder the apostle Paul. And these are the leaders of the nation. These are the leaders of the government. Thank you so much. Now just go back to the yeah, just the first one. So uh And not only are they the uh, the the government of the people, they're they're the supreme authority of the state, and they are corrupt to the core. You know, in our own country, you know, they talk about this uh, this hidden government kind of that's in kind of in control. And I I think there's there's truth to some of that, and I think you just see that the natural tendency of men, even in government, is to be corrupt. Religious government. And civil government. There is a movement in that direction. Just our, our sinful nature has a tendency to pull it and drag it that way. And even though they claim to make this oath being irrevocable, the Jewish experts, you know, they always had a way to get around these things and to annul these oaths. You know... uh the Lord Jesus had to rebuke the uh, scribes and the Pharisees for monkeying around with the oaths that they made. Remember He said, he accused them that, the, that if they say, if you swear by the temple, then that doesn't really count. But if you swear by the, the gold of the temple, then you're obligated to fulfill the vow. Or if you swear by the, the altar, that's really now you can get around that. But if you swear by the sacrifice on the altar, or then you're bound. They played around. They monkeyed around. And Jesus said to them, woe to you blind guides and fools. So I really doubt, even though these 40 assassins failed in their attempt to kill Paul, I doubt they missed a single meal. They probably went back and they found some loophole that they could spring so that they probably didn't suffer much at all even though they failed to, uh, to kill the Apostle Paul. I think one of the principles we can glean from this is just how useless external religion is if the heart is not changed. It does not help you. It will only condemn you all the more. It doesn't matter how outwardly religious someone is if their heart has not been humbled by the grace of God. If they've never repented and put their faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation, it will not help them on the day of judgment. It's like Judas, who was so near to Christ and saw his miracles with his own eyes who heard the incredible teachings of the lord who lived with him and ate with him and walked with him and fellowshiped with him and even was given the spirit of god and certain gifts to do miracles and and cast out demons himself and yet he was a devil from the beginning it's like well jesus said in matthew 7 Many, many will come to Me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in Your name and do miracles in Your name and prophesy in Your name? And Jesus said, Depart from Me, you lawless ones, for I never knew you. People can be very outwardly religious and they can go to church and they can do this and do that. And if their heart is not changed, they are not saved and redeemed. And here you got this Jewish religion in Jerusalem this council, these leaders of the Jews, the religious establishment that had become co-conspirators with the, with the, with the terrorists to murder a servant of Christ. And yet they had the temple and they had the sacrifices and they had the Levitical singers and they had the covenants of promise and the law and they've seen the miracles throughout their history. And yet they were cold stone dead in their hearts. But oh, they dressed up in all the religious garb and they did all the prayers and they gave all the money and they were cold stone dead. Outward religion will not benefit you if your heart is not humbled and changed by the grace of God. They had all of those things which pointed forward to Jesus Christ. And when Christ came on the scene, All they wanted to do was to crucify him. In the law, these people were immersed in the shadows of the gospel, and when the incarnation came, they killed him. The warning here, really, I think, is for all of us: is that you can go far in religion and still be a reprobate. You can be a disciple outwardly and still be a devil. You can actually make progress in outward holiness and yet be nothing but a whitewashed tomb dead on the inside. Has your heart been changed? Do you love Jesus Christ because He has forgiven you of your sins? And is it your desire to live for Him? See, the Sanhedrin had become a shipwreck like many churches today sadly in america the church is to be in the world but not of the world nor filled with the world and the old saying is is that the church is to be in the world as a ship is to be in the sea but woe to that ship if the sea gets into it it's going to sink The Sanhedrin was flooded with the world. Worldly love of money, power, status, and it sunk it to the bottom. And the only solution is that God's going to destroy it all at 70 A.D. He'll send in the Romans. They'll tear down the city. They'll tear down the temple. They'll tear it all down in judgment for what they really were an apostate religion. The church is to be the pillar and support of the truth. And we need to pray and ask for God's grace that we might be that. And on a practical level, we may not have a conspiracy formed to kill you and me. But we have a more crafty and powerful enemy always at war against us. Against the church. Against us individually. It's the world. It's Satan. And it's our flesh. So Paul had his enemies that wanted to assassinate him. We have our enemies that basically want to kill us or, or neutralize our, our witness for Christ. So in a certain sense, we have similar enemies, similar trials that Paul had. Only on, only different. Similar but Different. So let's look at how God in His providence protected the Apostle Paul. Because this is the encouragement. And what I want to do is to uh, talk again. We've been, last week was, we we kind of looked at the providence of God. And uh, I want us to look at it again uh, this morning. And I want to just start with a couple of definitions. Uh, just so when we throw out some of this, these terms, you'll have an idea of what we're talking about. On the providence of God that's going to play into our passage, we find, uh, for example, Lewis Burkhoff says that providence is that continued exercise of the divine energy, that is God's energy, whereby the Creator preserves all of His creatures, is operating in all that comes to pass in the world, and directs all things to their appointed end. In other words, God's in control. God is sovereign over all things. Basically, the providence of God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, which teaches catechism, word for word the same, but this was written earlier, says God's works of providence are His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all His creatures and all their actions. That's the providence of God. He preserves His creation, and He governs over it, all, all of His creation. Not only His creatures, but even their actions. That's the providence of God. And the providence of God is one of the more comforting uh, teachings, I think, uh, in Scripture for the church. So I want to look at the providence of God primarily in the context of delivering Paul from his trials, from this death threat, this assassination plot. And we find that in the Scriptures there are a lot of verses that speak of God's will overriding man's will. So you got this plot, this assassination plot to kill Paul, but God's will is going to override their will. Okay, so we just see this all throughout the Scriptures, this kind of thing showing up. For example, in Proverbs 19.21, many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. So which plan is going to come to pass, man's or God's if they contradict? God's God's plans will. His counsel will stand. In Isaiah 8, verse 10. Devise a plan, but it will be thwarted. State a proposal, but it will not stand. For God is with us. So in other words, even though you're like this assassination plot, and they form a plan, and they state a proposal, it will be thwarted and it will not stand because the Lord is our protector. God's providence protects us. In Psalm 33, verse 10, the Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. So again, God's will always triumphs over man's will. And this is one of these great truths that's again found all over the place in Scripture. Here's a few more. Job 42, verse 2, Job says at the end of his trials, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Satan can't thwart it. The demons can't thwart it. Men can't thwart it. God's purpose stands. And then you look at Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar? And the peoples devising a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand. And the rulers take their counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. Saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. So here you've got the nations coming against Christ. You've got the nations coming against God's people. And He's in heaven and He laughs at them. He scoffs at them. Their plans cannot thwart His plans. It's the opposite. Psalm 103 verse 19 The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His sovereignty rules over all. So again, the providence of God controls all things. And that explains what's going to happen next in the storyline. But our enemies, you see, are ultimately what we get from all these verses and what we get from the providence of God is that our enemies are ruled over by God even though they don't know it yet. And if they succeed in their evil plans, it's only because that was a part of God's plan. So that ultimately, nothing that happens in the world is outside of God's control and outside of God's will. If the lot is cast into the lap and it's every decision is from the Lord, then there's no such thing as chance or bad luck or good luck for that matter. It's all of God's providence. And this is encouraging because that means that even if bad things happen in my life, It's by God's providence. His control. And if it ultimately comes from God, then it comes with a good purpose for my life. And that's the blessing. I can receive it from the Lord knowing that He loves me and that it's designed for my good and for His glory. And if you don't believe in the providence of God, you really can't come to that conclusion. Because it's out of control. Well, let's look at uh, the nephew in verse 16. So we find in verse 16, this is where the providence of God now orchestrates another deliverance for the Apostle Paul. But the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, and he came and entered the barracks and told Paul, And Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, lead this young man to the commander for he has something to report to him. So here we've got Paul's nephew. Now Luke, Luke sometimes because he's a historian par excellence, he doesn't get into... All the unnecessary details, but I want to know you know, okay, so Paul has a sister, was she a believer? was this nephew a believer? What about the rest of his family life? and you just you you're curious, but the Spirit of God just says it's not it's not any of your business to know this stuff. so he just gives us the basics that Paul had a sister, and the sister had a son, so this is Paul's nephew, so he would call Paul Uncle Paul. And we don't know really anything about him so uh, really at all uh how he was able to hear about the plot. How in the world did this young man have access to where he overheard this plot being? I mean there's just all kinds of interesting questions that we don't have the answer to, but in God's providence, this young man was at at the right place at the right time, and this is a little circumstance with profound consequences that the providence of God has has ordained. So God led him to be right there right when he overheard this. And he happened to be Paul's nephew. He obviously likes his uncle. Whether he's a believer or not, I don't know. Whether it's just the family ties or the spiritual ties if he was a believer. But he wants to go and share this with his uncle. And so the Lord has orchestrated this where He overhears it and He learns about it uh, just in the providence of God. One of the things we learn from this is that God uses little people, insignificant people, to accomplish great goals and bring about great deliverances. He doesn't always use the great and the mighty, sometimes He just uses common people, just like you and me. He uses people like us. And I think a lot of times he receives more glory when he uses people like us than some of the great, big, powerful people. God does whatever God wants to do. We know in 1 Corinthians that's true of salvation. That he's pleased to call not the wise or the mighty or the noble in society, for the most part, but for the foolish he calls to shame the wise. The weak to shame the strong. And the insignificant to shame those who think they're important. So don't despise the day of small things. All Even small things are under the control of God and His providence. So even this insignificant young man that we don't even know he existed until he shows up on this, on this uh, verse... And basically all he did was he heard a report. But in taking that report to Paul, my goodness, the Lord was in control and was orchestrating this to again deliver Paul for the third time from being put to death. Second thing I want to say is uh, if you look at verse 17, when Paul gets the, the message from his nephew, He called one of the centurions to him and said, lead this young man to the commander for he has something to report to him. Now what I get from this is Paul was not a hyper-Calvinist, if I can use that expression. You say, well, what is a hyper-Calvinist? A hyper-Calvinist believes that, well, God has predestined all things, therefore It doesn't matter what I do. And I don't need to do anything. For example, God has chosen from before the foundation of the world whom He will save. Well, if God's chosen the elect and they're going to be saved, then I don't need to share the Gospel. And I don't need to do evangelism. And I don't need to be involved in missions. That's a hyper-Calvinist. Or that God is predestined that I become conformed to the image of Christ. So, well, if He wants me to be holy, then He'll make me holy. I don't need to to strive with my sin. Or I don't need to be diligent in the means of grace to become more... And that's a hyper-Calvinist. In other words, a hyper-Calvinist is so fixated on God's predestination that none of the commandments or the responsibilities that we have in Scripture, they they don't take them seriously. And that is wrong. We're to take all of God's commands and all those responsibilities upon us very seriously. Christ says, if you love Me, you'll do what? Keep My commandments. If you love Christ, you'll keep His commandments. So Paul, certainly there's no greater predestinarian than the Apostle Paul. And yet when he found the plot against himself, he didn't say now if you sit down and just cool your jets, would you? Because God's already told me He's going to take me to Rome. I'm going to bear witness there. So just relax. It's all going to work out. Don't, don't fret about it. Just go your way. He didn't take that attitude. He did the responsible thing. He did what he should have done. He alerted the authorities when a crime was about to take place. So in other words, even though he believed the promise of Christ to him, it did not in any way undermine his responsibility to act in such a way that would bring about uh, his deliverance from his perspective. And again, God is in control of all this. His, his providence is, is very much in, involved. So God ordains both the ends and the means to those ends. And we can't be passive we should not just look at the Scripture and say, well, I really don't have to do it because God's already predestined the end. No, no. The Bible never gives us that, that mindset. It never says to read Scripture as if it doesn't make any difference what I do. It does make a difference. Because it's all a part. It's all important. And yes, God's providence rules. But He rules through the means as well. Our obedience, our seeking after God our confession of our sin, all those things, our sharing the Gospel, all of that is vitally important. That is our responsibility. I don't understand what all God has predestined. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, right? In Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. But the revealed things belong to us and to our children forever. And I live by the revealed things. What God has told me to do. Because I don't know all that He's predestined. So, Paul is acting responsibly in verse 17. He's doing exactly what he ought to do. And then I also want to just point out as you look at this, so again, 18 and following, the commander calls for the young man. And uh, the young man explains to him the plot. And so he tells the young man in verse 22, Uh, Don't tell anybody else that you've notified me of this. And so in all of this, Paul, I think, if you read again verse 17, that he's calm, he's collected, he's in control. Once he finds about the plot, he calls a centurion to him and he says, take this young man to the commander because he has something to say to him. Now those words in and of themselves, it's interesting. Because you don't sense at all that Paul is panicking. You don't sense at all that he's wringing his hands. Oh no, they're going to try to kill me again. And and what's so interesting is that back up in verse eleven, the night before, he's just received Christ visiting him uh, in that uh, in the barracks, the Roman barracks, and giving him this incredible promise that he was going to take him to Rome and he would be a witness there. And yet, just a few hours later, he goes from the mountaintop experience of being with Jesus, and now it's like this free fall into the valley of the shadow of death. Well, now there's this a big, huge assassination plot that's going to try to kill him. And yet you sense, I sense in reading verse seventeen, that Paul is very calm about it. He's not just going berserk again, he's not panicking. He just says call the centurion, lead this young man to the commander for he has something to report to him. Nothing fearful in his words. No intense anxiety. No terrifying alarm that Paul is acting responsibly, but he's not acting fearfully. And why? Because I think he's believing in the promise that Jesus had just given him a few hours before. And what a What a connection. What an incredible thing to observe. That in the midst of a life-threatening trial, the Apostle Paul seems to be peaceful and calm. Why? Because in his mind is the promise of Christ. You're going to go to Rome. Which means this plot is going to fail. He acts responsibly. He informs the commander. And he takes action. But Christ has promised that to Paul. And even though it's a life-endangering situation, he's calm, he's in control, he's trusting because he has the promise of God. Now that, beloved, I think, is a tremendous principle for us to grasp. That whenever we're going through our trials and we're going through our difficulties... That we must cast ourselves upon the promises that God has given to us. That's what I think the Apostle Paul is doing. Sometimes our trials will be very difficult. Some will be life-threatening. Some will just be annoying. Some will be trying on various different levels. But the way to maintain the peace of God in our hearts is to rely and lean on the promises of God. And really the promises of God are designed to help us interpret the providence of God. All of this plot, all the assassination attempt is all according to God's providence. He's in control. When those trials come into your life and into my life, God is in control. They're there for a reason. You can either panic and you can go crazy and go fearful or you can lean on the promises that Christ has given to you and find peace and consolation for your soul. And that's what we're supposed to do. Jesus didn't come back to Paul and reassure him again. All is quiet from heaven now. But Paul must believe the words previously given when God seems to be absent or silent. Christ didn't appear to him again to reassure him. He just has to believe the promise that he received earlier. And in a similar way, we must do the same thing. And just for the fun of it. I just started when I started meditating on this, I started thinking, okay, as I apply it to myself, what promises from God do I need to remember all the time? When I go through life and just what is it in the character of God that I need to remember and continually to to bring up and review? Just encourage my heart with the trials and troubles that come my way. And this is just a uh, an eclectic collection of just ones that that the Lord has blessed me with in time. Second Peter one four for example for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become what a partaker of the divine nature having escaped the corruptions. In other words, the the promises of God are precious and magnificent. To make us more like Christ. That's why we have the promises in Scripture. That's why we need to have those promises in our mind. Because they help make us more like Christ and preserve us in the day of our own trial. How about Hebrews 13.5? I will never leave you nor will I ever forsake you. When you're going through a difficult time and you don't think God is near and you don't think that God cares and you don't see His His presence with you and why hasn't He intervened and rescued me from these trials? And yet, you, all the circumstances will, will fill you with confusion? And yet the promises of Christ is I will never leave you nor forsake you and you trust in the promise. He is with me. He is with me though I don't see His presence. He is with me though I don't feel His presence. But He said He is with me and I believe His promise. He cannot lie. He is with me and He will bring me through. The promises of God able to get us through our trials and our troubles in life. How about, uh, where are we? Philippians 4.19 My God will supply all your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He's promised to do that. Your needs are going to be met one way or another. He will meet your needs. He has promised you that in a time of financial downturn or a time of of poverty. He has promised to meet our needs. Romans 8.28 He's promised to work all things together for good. I mean, you know, this is all of our most favorite verse in the Bible, right? Probably every one of us. And we don't believe 10% of it. We love this verse, and yet we have a hard time believing it. Because so oftentimes, you know, when I'm in the midst of a trial or whatever, I forget, no, God is working it for my good. Therefore, I ought to thank God for it. But oh, that takes a lot of faith, and sometimes our faith waffles, doesn't it? Uh, Let's see what else. Just some more that the Lord has blessed. This is man's steps are ordained by the Lord. How then can he understand his way? This isn't really a promise, it's just a truth about the character of God. See, God has ordained our steps, and oftentimes we don't understand it because God's ways are higher than our ways. So that I don't understand where you're leading me. I don't understand where you're taking me. But he says, therefore, you're not going to understand. But your steps are ordained by the Lord. They are of the Lord. And sometimes it takes you down a path designed to confuse you. Designed to to make you scratch your head and say, I don't understand. It's designed to to lead you there. Why? So that you'll turn to the Lord and say, Lord, I don't understand. but, But it's a part of Your plan and I know You understand and I will trust in You. That's why He leads us into those circumstances. So we come to the end of our rope. So we begin to turn to Him and trust in Him. This has blessed me many, many times. 1 John 1 9, just the promise of his forgiveness and his cleansing of our sins. I mean, how we need that? Because we struggle with sin. And Satan is the great accuser of the brethren. He wants to hammer you and bury you under guilt. But yet, Jesus promises that if you confess your sins, he will forgive you, he will cleanse you. It's a promise of God. That when you're going through a deep, dark trial, that you can find that peace of God which surpasses comprehension. Psalm 103, He hadn't dealt with us according to our sins. For high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His loving kindness towards those who fear Him. Thank You, Lord, that You have not dealt with me according to my sins. Because if He has or had, I would be burning in hell at this moment. But there is mercy with God. There's loving kindness of God that's higher than the heavens. That's the God we worship. Matthew 11 Come to me, all who are weary, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to Christ. Are you weary? Are you are you just weighed down? Then come to Christ. He has promised to give you rest for your soul, but you must come to Him. I'm just saying, well, if He's going to give me rest, He's going to give me. No, you must come to Him. He commands you. He invites you. Come to Me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What a what a promise to encourage us when we're faced by our enemy that wants to do us in. Those assassination plots, spiritually speaking, that would undermine our faith or embroil us and capture us and ensnare us in some sin. How we need the promises of God. Casting all your anxieties upon Him because He cares for you. He cares for us. And that's why He wants us to cast our anxieties upon Him. So He can give us His peace. Well, just a few more lamentations. I was reading this yesterday in my Bible reading. And notice, this is what Paul is doing, I think. This is what we should be doing. It says, This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. Now, Jeremiah is going through a very, very dark time how did he find hope and encouragement? I recall this to mind. I brought it up and I began to meditate on it. I recalled it to my mind. And what did he recall to his mind? The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the person who seeks Him. And he recalled all of this to his mind. The promises of God. And he found hope to persevere through that dark time in Israel's history that he's writing about. The promises of God to bring encouragement and peace And even life-threatening circumstances. And what else? Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Your sin can't. Satan can't. Nothing can. What a joyful promise from God. And finally, we've already read it once. But we have this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ to obtain an inheritance, and we're protected by the power of God for that inheritance. See, Christ told Paul that he would definitely go to Rome and witness for him. Christ has told you, every true believer in Jesus Christ, that you'll, he's definitely going to get you to heaven. That inheritance is ours, it's promised, it will not fail. It cannot be in any way thwarted by our enemies. He's going to get us there. And what a joy it is. He will protect us. The providence of God protects us. And He protects us by His power. So these are some of the things that we need to keep our minds on. On the promises of God in times of trial. I think that's what Paul is doing. That's why he can just say very calm and collectedly, lead this young man to the commander. He has something to report to him. I don't think he's hysterical. I don't think he's panicking because he just remembered the promise that God gave him, and I think that's the principle that we need to glean from this. John Flavel. This is if you've never read the Mystery of Providence, you really ought to. It's a great book written by a great Puritan. And in that book, he says, a bad heart and a slippery memory deprive men of the comfort of many mercies and defraud God of the glory due to Him. I like that slippery memory. Anybody have a slippery memory? (laughs) Read the Word of God, and like I mean ten seconds later, what did I just read? promises we met on, but the slippery memory. Man, those those things aside, we need to be reviewing constantly. He also said, let not your thoughts swim like feathers upon the surface of the water, but sink like an anchor to the bottom. And I'm applying this quote in a different context, but this is true of meditating on the promises of God in times of trouble. Don't let your thoughts just be like a, a feather floating on the water, but let it sink. Get your thoughts down into the promises of God like an anchor, because that'll hold you secure when the waves are washing against you and trying to 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 wash you over. In essence, I think the principle that I've come away with from this passage is very simple. That we see it in Paul's experience. To let God's promises help you understand God's providences. And I think God's promises are designed to strengthen us in the day of weakness. His promises are designed to give us peace in the midst of emotional storms. His promises are designed to give us hope when everything looks hopeless. His promises turn our eye to God, to His faithfulness, that He's our rock, He's our shield, He's our protector. And so in the last couple of verses, you find the commander now calls 200 soldiers in verse 23 and 24, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen far more than sufficient to protect the Apostle Paul. This is, this is an army 12 times larger than the assassination gang that's trying to kill Paul. 12 times larger. There are about 40 of them. This is what? 470 of them. Almost 12 times larger. And then they leave at 9 p.m. in the evening under the cover of darkness. To make it harder for anybody to chase him down and to try to kill Paul. And they even put Paul on a horse as well. Verse 24. They go the 35 miles at night to Antipatris. Where they'll uh, pause for a moment. And then they'll, they'll carry on. But God is abundant in His protecting providence for the Apostle Paul. And notice he doesn't do a supernatural deliverance like he did with Peter and the jail opening up and all these supernatural... No, he, just, he uses the common means of grace. He uses Paul responding responsibly. He uses the nephew. He uses the commander. He's using human soldiers. So God can deliver us either supernaturally or just through the common means of grace. But our enemies can only do against us what God allows them to do. His will will thwart their will. Your life and my life is protected until the day that God ordains that we fall asleep in Jesus. But we're invincible until that hour comes. Our souls are also eternally protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, 1 Peter 1. And these are the encouragements that as we go to the promises of God, even though we have our share of trials too, that if we keep the promises of God in our mind and call them to our mind, that it can give us God's peace so that we can respond in faith and trust in Him without panic, without going crazy, because we know that His promises are solid and His promises can help us to interpret are circumstances of God's providence. Even though they seem bad, we know God is in control. Well, our baptism is actually a picture of the protecting providence of God in a couple of ways. When we are baptized, we are identified with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. And that becomes a picture of the pledge that God has given to us That even though we fall asleep in Jesus, that we have a pledge and a promise from God that if we die, we too will be resurrected. And that's pictured in the waters of baptism. A second picture is that our souls are protected because as the water symbolizes the complete washing away of all of our sins, so we stand justified in Christ. We stand forgiven in Christ. We stand declared righteous in Christ. All of our sins have been washed away. We are protected. Who is there to condemn us? No one. Who is there to bring a charge against us? No one. God has paid our debt. Christ has suffered in our place. He has borne the wrath of God for our sins. And we who trust in Him have forgiveness. So our souls are protected by the providence of God that ordered the cross, the crucifixion, the resurrection, all for the blessing Of his people. So, with that in mind, we are going to now transition to our time of baptism. And uh, we will close in a hymn as we prepare. But just remember again, I think the, the principle of our passage is the importance of meditating on the promises of God to help us understand and have God's peace when the frowning providences of God seem to come our way. So with that in mind, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father God, we thank You, Lord, how we see You intervening to rescue Your servant, the Apostle Paul, for a third time in just a few days. And Father, we thank You that that precious providence of God is something that we can find great joy and peace in as well for we too will have we have our enemies and we have our trials and troubles just like the apostle Paul but he found peace because his mind was focused upon your promise and Lord for us as well For there are beloved brothers and sisters here gathered this morning that have brought a heavy weight into this service. They have been carrying many troubles, many loads upon their souls. And Lord, we need your grace to turn our eyes to your promises that we might cast our burdens upon you because you care for us, you love us, and to know, Lord, that your providence always comes, even through the trials and troubles of life to accomplish your glory and our good. So, Lord, help us to turn to your promises, to understand your providences, and we'll give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.